We conclude our remarks on an eighth objection which has been raised in connection with the question, what do we know about the truthfulness of God from the Bible? This objection relates to a theory of the atonement of Christ that came into prominence in Reformation times and has come to be held by many in our day without specifically defining just what is meant by some of the terms used. It is this, that the atonement was of the nature of a literal payment of the debt of sinners to the offended personal nature of God the Father. The Father is supposed to have punished the Son according to the exact guilt of those for whom the atonement was made. If someone owed a debt of a hundred dollars, let us say, and if someone else submitted to pay the hundred dollars accrued, then such a one is acquitted on the basis of the exact payment having been made. This view, if truly established by the Bible, comes into conflict with other facts that are established by the Bible beyond question, namely, that the Bible affirms that the Lord Jesus, in his blessed atonement, tasted death for all men in the same sense, and yet that there is everywhere evident and is testified by the Bible that all men are not being saved. In order to clarify this most important subject and relieve the Bible from the position of endeavoring to establish conflicting propositions, we have presented the matter thus. First, we have seen that the Bible, beyond any question, presents the most blessed fact, which is just what we would expect from a loving and impartial God, that the Lord Jesus Christ tasted death for every man and became the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. Secondly, in spite of this grand provision of mercy, only a comparatively small minority are availing themselves of God's wonderful salvation. This is evident on every hand, and we were in process of reading a number of passages from the Bible to see that it reinforces our observation. We come to Luke chapter 13 and verse 23, where the astonished disciples are asking the Master a very important question. Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. Then we come to uh, John chapter 6 and verse 67, where during the last years of our Lord's ministry, so many of his disciples went back. What a sad fact we read in verse 66. And then he turned to his twelve apostles and pathetically said, Will ye also go away? In Matthew 21.10, when our Lord presented himself as the promised Messiah to Israel, the leaders said, Who is this? He was considered merely as a prophet when he was in fact the Lord of glory. In the 23rd chapter of Luke, verse 21, we read, that the mass of the people did not permit him to live, but cried, Crucify him! Crucify him! In the 8th chapter of Acts, verse 1, we read that the early church was bitterly persecuted 
and scattered abroad. And Paul described the usual position of the faithful servant of God in 1 Corinthians 4.13 when he said, We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. The great apostle who had died daily for his Lord saw his earthly doom awaiting him, as recorded in 2 Timothy 4.6. I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. Our Lord Jesus foresaw that so great would be the offense of the cross, and so reluctant would men be to turn away from their sins, that the gospel would not be successful in reaching and converting the world, but that the age of God's grace would have to end in judgment. So we read in Matthew chapter 24, verse 37. As in the days of Noah, our Lord said, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Thus it is overwhelmingly a fact of observation and biblical revelation that only a comparatively small minority will repent of their sins and avail themselves of the forgiveness of sins through personal faith in the glorious atonement of Christ. The gospel of God's great grace will fail of its purpose to draw all men to Christ in the wonderful salvation. Thus we conclude, if the blessed atonement was made for all men in the same sense, and if all men are not being saved, we can be positively sure of one fact, that the death of Christ was not a literal payment for anyone's sins. The historical fact that this theory of the atonement did not come into systematic expression until a few hundred years ago should lead us to be gravely suspicious of its correctness. Was Paul and the other apostles of the Lord deficient in theory? Was the early church which its fervent persecuted piety also deficient? The simple plain fact is that God never intended man to theorize on the sufferings of Christ and the glorious gospel, but to receive these great verities at face value and be reconciled to himself in the great blessing of the forgiveness of sin. When the church began to theorize on these great events, of such unspeakable concern, she lost her spiritual fervency and went to wrangling about words. Any reader of early church history can verify this. To show how erroneous ideas can gain prominence, it need only be noted that the atonement of Christ in the third century came to be regarded as a ransom price paid to Satan for man's liberation. Now certainly Satan had no righteous claim over man. The simple statements of the Bible seem to be that sin is such a dreadful tragedy in the kingdom of God that it cannot be disposed of in any simple manner. Some equivalently terrible event must be brought to pass to honorably deal with the matter of sin. God may be ever so ready to forgive freely man out of his great bounty of love, but cannot do so. That's simply because there are other considerations and problems involved. The judgment of eternal punishment has been pronounced upon sinners for their sins. 
This woe was pronounced out of God's love for righteousness and because it is man's true desert. God has said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. As you read in Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 20, Sin has been committed and continued in with persistence. Can God now reverse himself and say, The soul that sinneth, it shall live? without some great procedure to justify his change of mind and heart? Of course, the subjects of mercy must absolutely repent of their sinful ways, or no mercy at all can be extended. What? Shall God pardon sinners who are still intending to rebel against him? Should our earthly magistrates pardon criminals behind the bars who vow that uh, they would continue in the ways of crime when they are released? Would one respectable judge in the land be found to do such a thing? Certainly God is not less judicious, and therefore sincere and honest and humbling repentance there must be, or no forgiveness is it all possible? We have in the 51st Psalm an expression as to how God feels. Verse 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Then our Lord Jesus, you remember, said in Luke 13:3, Except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And so Paul went forth and declared everywhere, as recorded in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, that God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. But God has declared it to be a fact emanating from his authority that if he is loving and kind and ever so willing to forgive, and if man's heart is ever so broken up in penitence, and willingness to forsake all sin, still salvation is impossible. For we read in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 22, without shedding of blood is no remission. The unloveliness of animal sacrifices were instituted in Old Testament times as a temporary measure to enable God to forgive penitent sinners. That this was temporary is evident from Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. The great fact of the atonement of Christ is stated in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, this relating to the Old Testament sacrifices, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living and true God? Now the Godhead are exceedingly happy in the possibility of the free exercise of mercy on the basis of repentance and faith. The Bible does not systematize 
all the reasons for the necessity of the awful event of the sufferings of Christ. But it does state that in some vital sense the sufferings of Christ during a brief duration of time were substituted for the endless punishment of sinners as a measure of righteous forgiveness of sin when other necessary conditions are met. Beyond this, we do not need to go, nor to attempt to exhibit any brilliance in any new discoveries. When the words reconciliation, propitiation, ransom, redemption, and the like are used in connection with the sufferings of Christ, we are to understand them as modified by Bible usage and not seek to inject various shades of meaning that have developed in the secular world. The blessed Word of God will balance itself out and convey to us the thoughts that God deemed it necessary for us to know. Our Heavenly Father, we're so grateful for the guidance of thy precious Word and for its wonderful revelations. We thank thee that the Lord Jesus Christ tasted death for every man and that the glorious gospel invitation goes forth to everyone. We pray that many may fulfill the conditions of repentance and faith toward this death and be reconciled to thee, our Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.